this is Amalia. This is Marco, and we're back again, another video, another podcast. And today we have a really special guest. Um, Amalia's going to introduce him for you because yes. you're going to see why. <laughs> okay, so uh, as some of you may not know, um, I do climbing. I've been a competitive rock climber for a number of years, and it is one of my main passions in life. I also work at the climbing gym that we interview. Okay, I work at the gym that the person we're interviewing owns, and he owns not only the gym that I work at and have trained at and have lived at, but um, a few other locations um, around the East Coast. And he was also one of the first people to kind of commercialize climbing in the area. And he has made amazing progress um, opening up gyms and creating a community and creating a space that bonds people on a multi-generational level and uh, just really cool guy. And I'm excited to introduce him. And his name is Mike Wolf, Mike Wolford. Um, yeah, and, and, and like, it's it's something that it's not just for climbers. This this interview is it's a takeaway for everybody. Um, I, if you're in business, this is gonna work for you, and if you're in sports, this is gonna work for you too. In every sport, um, lessons that we're gonna talk about, they're gonna apply to everybody in, in every walk of life, and you know it's gonna be a great interview. And other than that, Formula One this weekend was great. Um, Verstappen won. Uh, Leclerc and uh, Ferrari, they bottled it. They they could have won with a better tire strategy, but they didn't. Um, my sister was incredibly depressed because Leclerc didn't win. Um, and then you know, I, I I was sad, but I'm not depressed. I, I only get depressed when Byron loses, and it's okay. It's another sport. So you like, do you not wear the shirt that day? Your Byron shirt? I I do wear it, but I wear it with sadness. And like solemnly, yeah. Yeah, I, I, but I, I still wear it because through thick and thin. But that's all you own. <laughs> oh, no, no, I, I own more shirts than a Byron shirt, but it, it, I, I have like to wear it. Occasions where Marco doesn't wear a Byron shirt, but yeah. Um, and Byron's back. They played against Leipzig last Saturday in the in the Super Cup. They won five three. A great match. Sadio Mane scored on his debut. It was amazing. I'm really happy. It made my day. And probably my week, and probably um, well, Bayern's back this Friday too against Frankfurt Bundesliga opener. Premier League is back this Friday. Um, Liverpool beat Manchester City in the Community Shield, which is like a Super Cup, the champion of the league and the champion of the FA Cup. And Darwin Nunez scored on his debut. It was it was a great match. Watch the highlights. I I really recommend it. And then, yeah, I mean, soccer's back. It's it's back and it's it hopefully going to be better than ever. Did it ever leave? Kind of like it, it went through international um, games, which are kind of boring when when it's not like a World Cup or the Euros. And then it's like the summer break transfers. Um, but yeah, like I watched women's soccer uh, like the last couple of weeks. Um, England beat Germany at the women's Euros. And it, it was a good game. It, it went on to extra time and then England scored the winner very late on. Um, broke Germany's hearts. Germany deserved to win, in my opinion, but that's how it is. Um, plus, like, honestly, nobody wants England to win anything, like, unless you're British. Like, 
it's kind of like cultural bias here from the British. Oh, it's it's like I don't know, like people don't like the Brits in in, in like sports. They they're very noisy. So, really? Like, yeah, like when when England wins, English English fans go like crazy. They, they're always bragging about it for for years to come. So, uh, I I really don't want to want to hear about it. So when Italy won the Euros uh, last year against England, it was like a double win for me because like Italy won. I was happy it's my team, but then also I was really really happy that England didn't win. Well, they're probably so proud because they don't have much else going for them in England. Oh yeah, like everything went down after like the East India Trading Company and their control of every colony and and like world control. Everything went down from there, yeah, Marco. Yeah, everything went downhill from there. From for the British, like they were like, oh yeah, I like yeah, bro, I got so much stuff, bro, and (laughs) and now now they don't. Okay. Now like they also killed all their natural wildlife, so come on. Yeah, like plus like I watched Braveheart, and honestly, like. That just brought down my opinion on Britain. Like the Scottish were right. Like William Wallace was right. I'm team William Wallace to the end. And and then I watched another Mel, Mel Gibson movie, The Patriot. And the British are the bad people. Like, so kind of like I kind of blame Mel Gibson for like the global like opinion of the British because he's always making mu- movies where the British guys are the bad guys. And you know, kind of like the movie stuff, like that. Like sometimes during this podcast, you see me talk about movies a lot. Um, I watched a horror movie. I watched Titanic. <laughs> okay, okay. Marco and I have been talking about this. Titanic is not a horror movie, but Marco is convinced that it's the scariest thing he's seen. In a well, movie. not after I watched The Shining. I watched The Shining, and it was like kind of scarier than than Titanic. But Titanic is scary for me because as a man, you know, women and children can go on the lifeboats. Men can't. Like, if I was there, I wouldn't have made it. Like, they would have been like, how old are you? I would have been like, I'm 16. They're like, let me see, see your passport. Then I show it to you. You mass ID. You mass ID. And I was like, oh, you're actually like oh, almost 20. You're not going on a lifeboat. And then, I think it was a bit more frantic than that. I think people were kind of just going for it. Like, you maybe you would have made it. You could have jumped into a boat. Like, there were guys that survived. Yeah, like the the guys in first class, like the 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 bad people in, in the show, like in, in the in the movie, but like I'm not gonna spoil it anymore. Just watch it. Like oh yeah, sorry to spoil it after what twenty years of it being released. Or yeah, but like they they don't know like who dies in that movie. Like oh yeah, they don't. Okay. Like unless there's more uncultured people that haven't watched Titanic like me like a couple of weeks ago, like that was one of the big movies that I hadn't watched, but mm-hmm. now I did, and. Yeah, this is the intro for today. We're we're really, really, really happy to have everybody like listening um, and enjoy, learn from it. And we hope that it adds value to you. All right. In a while. Okay, awesome. Um, Yeah, I guess you just give a little introduction of who you are to everyone listening and kind of what you do. And yeah. Hey, I'm Mike Wolford. I'm the founder and CEO of the Cliffs Climbing and Fitness. All right, so first question is basically just a how, when, and why uh, did you decide to start building a climbing gym in Valhalla, like the original Cliffs location? You know, 
I guess to back up, and this is really interesting and kind of in relation to where you both are at, for all my life up and into college, right, there's always these goals, right, get good grades, get into school, like compete for you and climbing. For me, it was other sports because climbing wasn't, you know, a high school or collegiate thing at the time, but there was always those goals, get the next thing, get the next thing. Then I graduated and got a job and I got a desk job. And I'm like, this is it, like nine to five in here the rest of my life, like no new goals, no new milestones. And it was kind of depressing, to be honest. Um, And I had always been um, like yourselves, an athlete. And I competed in crew. I competed as a professional mountain biker. I was, uh, you know, a big mountain skier, a lot of different things kind of aggressively and semi-professionally. And I always wanted to go back to that route of, of being in an adventure sport, um, but I knew I needed a base of having a background working in the corporate world. So I had gotten a, a normal, you know, a desk job in New York and wound up quitting that and moving out West and, and, and getting a job. And this is right around 2000 during the dot-com revolution. So I got a job with a dot-com in the Bay Area um, and, and found climbing out there. And there was a moment and it was, I think, you know, just there's a specific epiphany moment. And coming around the corner of Route 120, as you hit Yosemite Valley and all of a sudden, bam, El Cap and bam, Half Dome. And, you know, just seeing these walls of granite and it it just, yeah, I'll never forget that moment. And and after my first experience climbing in the valley, I was like this, this this is what I want to do with my life. So, you know, to kind of wrap it full circle, operating a climbing gym kind of marries that ability to make an income, support a family, and still be around climbing, still be around climbers, still introduce people to my passions. And can I ask like how old uh, you were when you discovered that? Because a lot of people assume that like you have to be into a sport from, you know, when you were five to like actually be so interested and involved in it. So yeah, right. And you know, to be fair, the most happy and successful people I know have shifted careers seven times. You don't need to know coming out of school or whatever, you know, who I was coming out of school, taking a job and a different, you know, working with a marketing firm and working with a dot-com and different things over the years. Like I've shifted and used that wealth of knowledge I've accumulated to be a good CEO. And so I think you don't need to know. Um, and, and similarly, like with sports, um, yes, I was in my late twenties before I picked up climbing. Um, sure. I do things probably a little more aggressively than folks. So I, I wound up at that moment quitting my job, moving into my car and doing it full time. So I, I took it pretty seriously. But um, yes, I did not have a background or a lifestyle of climbing growing up. It's really cool that you just took a leap of faith there and, yeah. and that you saw what you wanted to do in life. And a lot of people like come to that epiphany, but they, they don't take the, the chance. They don't take the risk that comes with pursuing what's literally what you you're meant to do that purpose and it's really cool that you actually took that thanks yeah and it's 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 sad that you know so many people our lives are ruled by their fears rather than their passions um right most people aren't willing to drop everything and, and chase their passions and it's scary to be sure um you know, you lose that safety net. Um, but most people are ruled by like, well, if I lose my job and this and this and what happens, right? And so, so I think, yes, most people are ruled by their fears rather than their passions. Yeah, completely. And um, so did you, I'm just curious, like, did you face, I know climbing wasn't really, it was more just indoor climbing was just um, like train for the outdoor 
like the real thing. Um, so did you face like backlash or criticism at the very beginning or was it more like of a supportive environment? Uh, for well, okay, so interestingly, um, not, not from climbers per se. Um, I wound up getting uh, picked up on an old TV show called Global Extremes where it was kind of a man versus wild type of thing, but more of a team, a group event. Um, where they would put us in these scenarios and say, you know, make it through this high altitude traverse of this mountain range and we're going to film you uh, kind of stuff. And met Chris Warner, who is the, was the owner and operator of Earth Tracks Climbing Gyms, but also a pretty renowned mountaineer himself. And so we kind of met on a trip and he became a mentor to me and taught me how to operate climbing gyms. Um, and so, yeah, it was just kind of a, a, without exaggeration, we're on the side of a mountain at say like, four or five a.m. in the morning talking about, you know, future, what future may hold. And, and the whole thing came about where he was a gym operator and my dream was to operate a gym. And it was kind of a funny moment. But um, when I first went to build uh, the, a first gym in, in Westchester, uh, Valhalla, um, that the hard part was finding um, access to capital and real estate, right? Because Finding gyms with 40 foot ceilings or open boxes, I should say, that should be can be converted into a commercial facility um, that have 40 foot ceilings and no column spans is very, very, very rare in the real estate world and often cost prohibitive. If you have to build a building of that size, it's hard to make that money back. So it's a very difficult ask. And then on top of that, at the time when I said, here's my concept, here's what I want to do inside the building, they're like, the landlords were responding with, you're gonna do what to my building? What happens if you go bankrupt, if nobody wants to climb, if it's not a good concept that I'm stuck with this giant walls inside my building and I gotta to pay to have them removed. I go to the banks and I was asking, hey, you know, I need a million dollars to build a climbing gym and the banks for, for what? You know, especially now we're talking 2004, um, Valhalla opened in 2005, banker types had never heard of climbing. Now at this point, at least banker types, your kids have been to a climbing birthday, their kids may be on a team. Everyone's kind of familiar with it. Everybody's seen free solo. It's changed. The market has changed. People's conception of what climbing is has changed. Um, but at the time, people had never even heard of it, never even seen it. And so convincing lenders to get financing, convincing realist uh, landlords to let me lease their space was a very difficult moment. It must have been a very interesting conversation. And I wish I could. Right? Wish I could have heard then, it. <laughs> I've been living out of my car for so long that I couldn't even, at the time of building Valhalla, uh, really afford an apartment. So I was showering at friends' houses and sleeping in my car in the parking lot in Valhalla to build the first one. Wait. So did you? I always was confused about this. Did you? You built the Valhalla space like from the ground up, or was it always connected to those other businesses? Like, was it? This is also a really fun, interesting story. So the the, oh, the big open part of Valhalla, it's a 50 by 100 or 5,000 square foot box, that space, plus, you know, the mezzanine on top. Um, so um, that space was initially built out by a subcontractor of NASA. The original lunar landing module was built there. Are you serious? I'm dead serious. And then that same contractor built the tail end of a tanker jet and the front end, I guess, of a, a fighter jet. And so they could, you know, simulate before kind of um, virtual simulations, refueling in midair um, in that space. 
Um, and so that was also in Valhalla. I've never been able to get pictures or anything. If you, find, if you come across in your research, I'd love to see it. I met an elder retired person who had worked and told me all these st stories in the space, but at the time it was classified. Um, and then it got sold and was just used as a furniture warehouse for a, for a furniture sales company. Um, so it was, when we took it over, we took it over from a, a furniture warehousing company to the sales company. Wow, yeah, it's funny because like usually gyms now are so standalone, but Valhalla has like these weird little businesses next to it. I don't know, it's just, it's it's like, it's unique. Um, it is, and it's a di from a different era to be fair, right? Like in 2005, it was a very different model than we're building now. Mm -hmm. um, when we first operated, the number of actual climbers or people who would buy a membership for climbing were nominal. It certainly wouldn't have paid the bills. We made all of our income Friday, Saturday, and Sunday for kids' birthday parties. And then midweek, it was a handful of me and my best friends from the Gunks coming down to climb with me. <laughs> and, you know, it was like a little hangout zone, but nobody knew what climbing was at the time. And it, it obviously has built momentum since then. But without birthday party income, we would not have survived. It's so funny because birthday parties is how like 90% of like competitive kids start climbing. And it's all because like we started around like 2006, 2007 era. And that was when like gyms just did birthday parties because they needed it. Like right. it's just funny right. to hear the connection. Right. right. Yeah. And now when we then opened LIC in now 2013, um, we had built a room which we call the Fox Room, which was specifically designed around being able to host parties and events. And what we realized was now the market will bear, there's so many people who want membership. And when you're, you know, kind of a 25 to 35 year old enjoying your fitness membership, or your climbing membership, you really don't want kids running around and screaming and having birthday parties. And we realized that there was enough demand to be successful at either the birthday party business or the adult membership model, but to do both, I thought was kind of half-assing each, right? Like you, you, the kids don't have as much fun if they're kind of penned into a certain area and the adults don't have as much fun if the kids are running around like crazy. So we decided to focus on the membership um, and the adult, the climber model, the core, our roots, right? Building climbers. Um, and so in the newer model gyms, birthday parties is really kind of a, a side thing that sure we'll take them early Saturday mornings or late Friday nights when, when our traditional member base is either, you know, out at the bars or sleeping off the, the hangover or whatever, when, when people aren't in the gym. Um, we'll still host parties then, but only outside of member use hours. So it's really completely shifted. And now, yeah, our ultimate goal is providing it the best possible climbing experience to that member base. Yeah, it's interesting, uh, like you said, especially, well, as you know, I've kind of been like interning with the cliffs and like I've been trying to um, kind of understand how it feels to create like a good customer experience while also dealing with their safety like every second so it's like I'm also curious about I don't know I mean I know so like you just you designed the fox room do you do that also because of safety do you think like oh because you don't want kids like bash into each other around members or like I'm curious about how you how your brain worked when you designed like LIC or like other gyms was there anything specific yeah, I mean, every time we design a gym, I see things that I really loved about how we did it. And every time I look into any gym, uh, I feel like there's something to learn, uh, whether it's the clips or and otherwise. And, you know, every, I think building gyms to me is a lot like 
climbing for everybody. Like, ah, oh, I built a 510. Next time around, I got to build 511, right? Like I'm training, I'm always trying to build the next bigger, better thing. And so if you look at, you know, Valhalla and how parties are managed versus then LIC, we built the Fox room and that room, it's really meant to contain them. It's got its own PA system. It's got a separate area where there's actually used to be a functioning roll down uh, garage door between the kids area and the bouldering area. Um, you can look, it's still there, although we never use it. Um, and then if you look now for Gowanus, the, our most recent facility that opened this spring, um, there is an actual glassed in room with its own air conditioning, its own PA system, everything that, um, that if we do have a kids event, it's on a completely separate floor even from our main climbing spaces. So it won't affect the member experience at all. Um, so really what I'm trying to do is separate it and it's better for the kids because they get their own private exclusive climbing walls, which is pretty awesome for a birthday party. And it's better for the adults because you don't have screaming kids and pizza being spilled and all the things. Yeah, no, when I went to Guana for the first time, I was like, this is amazing because right. even when like you're working, like you you want to like, you can keep your eye on everyone at the same time. So yeah, no, I that was an appreciated um, little piece for me. Um, but Marco. So, so how many climbing gyms do you have in total? We operate five indoor climbing facilities and we also operate an outdoor climbing wall in the Brooklyn Bridge Park in Dumbo. Um, and technically there we're a vendor concessionaire for the park service, like the folks who operate the carousel for them or something. Um, so they built the wall and we, we manage it for them. And when, uh, when was the point that, you know, after having one gym, when was the point that you were like, I want another one? Yeah, right. So I always thought the one gym would be this like cool little hangout for me and my climate friends. And, and then, you know, again, I think being a goal oriented person and being a climber and you always want the next thing was like, well, okay, now I'm managing this day to day and the gym starts running itself pretty smooth and we've got our operations down and you start thinking about like what that next objective is. So just, you know, like I said, like climbing, like mountaineering, you're like, what's the next summit? What's the next peak? What's the next gym to build? And, and so it took from Valhalla opened in 2005. Um, the next gym opened in 2014. So it took nine years to build enough momentum to build, you know, a larger urban model gym um, from our kind of, you know, initial first round in, in Westchester. Um, and then from there, we've kind of gained momentum where pre-COVID, we were set to be building essentially a gym a year where we opened, um, you know, we opened a Philadelphia gym, a Harlem gym, and a Brooklyn gym, boom, 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 in a row, where they were all, I guess, overlapping in construction at one point. And how did you pick the locations? And was it a lot of research, or is there like a climbing culture, culture already in those locations? Yeah, I mean, that is the hardest, um, I guess, the biggest barrier to growth at this point for for any, any climbing wall operator um, is, is finding the real estate. Um, because looking, like I said, now we're looking, we've shifted a lot more to urban areas than we are in, you know, Valhalla was built in, you know, near a cemetery in an in a industrial center in suburbia, right? And, and then we built that gym in Long Island City, Queens, and it's, it was a whole different world of population density, the number of members. And we, like I said, we can just focus on members in a place like that. So, so as the model has shifted to urban centers, finding 40,000 square foot boxes with 40 foot ceilings and without column spacing, look, Manhattan was built 
you know, most of those buildings are 100 plus years old. Um, they, they, they're 10 foot ceiling heights and 12 foot column space, and you can't build climbing gyms in spaces like that. So you're either looking for, you know, a total teardown buildup, but that's a, you know, incredibly expensive prospect or getting lucky and finding a, a, a church or an armory or something that could be converted into a commercial space. Um, so that's the hard part. And then on top of that, like you said, Marco, you wanna, we wanna build in an area that has the right demographic being that there is um, a proximity to public transit, um, uh, safe for a person to walk there alone at night from the public transit to the front door and not feel like they're about to get mugged. And, you know, and a population in the area <clears throat> of, let's say, 25 to 35 year olds that, that can afford a, a fitness membership. Does that answer your question? Yeah. And so what were some of the, the biggest challenges you've, you, you encountered along the way? since you started, like, once you had the first gym built, what was the biggest challenge that you faced moving forward? You know, it's funny because it can be separated into so many conversations, right? I feel like, you know, harping on the real estate here, like that is obviously the biggest barrier to growth, I think. If there were, if it was easier to find these boxes, I think you'd see national brands the way you see national fitness brands. And the reason why the largest players in the industry in, the, in North America only have like 20 gyms versus say, Orange Theory came on the scene and started building 500 gyms a year, right? Like there's a difference as real estate. Um, I think that when you have a successful model and especially operating in a place like New York, the access to capital is, tends to be the easier part to be, to be frank. I mean, do people have money right now they want to invest and they're looking for good businesses to invest in. And so as long as you know how to put together a successful, a good business model, you have a strong business, you know, we have a track record now of 17 years of successful business operations, we can find the money. It's just finding the real estate. Um, I think there's also, you know, in urban centers, finding enough qualified climbers is a hard thing to operate a facility. People who can give a lead belay test, people who can coach kids teams, people who can route set and route setting is a difficult and uh, it's, it's got to be one of the hardest jobs out there, right? Because you need folks who can climb the hardest grade. So they have to be an elite level athlete. You person is working with an impact driver, a drill in their hand, that, 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 that all day long. So it is a, an intense blue collar job. It's a construction job. They also have to be an artist, right? They're choreographing movement on the wall. And so you need an artistic brain to kind of create that style movement. And so to put all those together and have a person that wants to work in a very intense job and those jobs, you, you, you put a few holes on the wall and then you pull on and feel the moves. And so you're often, in your tennies, pulling V10 moves without a proper warm up, it can be pretty debilitating and you know, beating down on your body. And then, you know, those setters also get into it because they love climbing the same way you and I do. Um, and so all of a sudden weekend rolls around and they want to roll out to their local crag for us, it's the gunks. And they're like, man, I've been setting all week. I need to just sit and recover. I can't go climbing this weekend. Um, and so it, it can even take away from that passion. So finding qualified setters or training people to be qualified setters is going to be one of the hardest things as, as this industry grows faster and faster. It is a tough job. With our staff, we have a, um, we pay full timers 
um, our route setters, but we'll only have them setting four days a week so that they can have recovery days before the weekend and they can still enjoy their weekends. We provide uh, staff yoga and physical therapy and things to keep them healthy on the long term um, because it is such a tough job. Yeah, I've always been curious about that, um, especially because, I don't know, maybe maybe I, d I dabble in studying as well, um, although I'm not sure. I've always assumed that it was, you know, just like Jill's job. Like, I noticed the names, but um, when I was a kid, I like looked up to that. Uh, but I was curious, I know when you first heard of Valhalla, um, you kind of were, I assume that you had a very like close eye on everyone, but now that you have so many locations, do you like personally interview or do you like drop it on the new setters or do you um, rely on your managers that you've handpicked to coordinate that? Yeah, I mean, personally, I am happy to delegate. I'm good at letting go of control. Um, I do not, I like, I still love rock climbing. I still love mountain biking. I have a family. I have kids that I want to be a present dad for and be around them. So um, yes, I am very happy. I tell my staff, take my job, please. Um, and I'm happy to compensate well. I pay well higher than industry average rates for basically all level positions. So um, yes. Um, and I'm also lucky enough to have found folks that I trust. I think in an industry like climbing, you get people who say, sure, I could be working in Manhattan, you know, because we're a New York based operator and in a, in a corporate desk job and I can make this much more if I'm, you know, working on Wall Street or whatever else but I choose to be in climbing for a lifestyle decision. And those are the type of folks who are passionate, who care about what they do, who believe in what we're building that are kind of the most trustworthy, loyal, dependable staff because they do it because they believe in it and not just for a paycheck, right? Um, and so I'm very, very lucky to have found those folks. And we have a, a director of route setting who is part of kind of our, our top senior level management who makes decisions on the course of the whole company, but also manages route setting, uh, Paul Jung, and he, he manages all of that. I don't honestly went to a comp in Harlem and one of the setters was like, oh, sir, can you step back, please? <laughs> I had no idea who I was. That's so funny to hear. Um... Oh yeah, speaking of competitions, did you think that like comp competitive climbing would get this big or do you, like, when was the moment where you decided to start like a youth team? And I don't know, I wanna hear like your thought process behind that and what you thought it would be. Yeah, funny, cause that has obviously evolved and changed a lot too over time. I think, you know, Valhalla has always had high level comps. Um, in the beginning, um, just because the after party was so legendary, we had comps in the early years where people with our little cash purse and no national attention or whatever else, people who made nationals, um, adult nationals, didn't make finals and Valhalla Pizza Strikes because the competition was that fierce back in the day. Um, so um, it was always kind of our culture to have high level comps. Um, teams, interestingly, I came at it from a very, very different perspective. As you've heard, like I had a, you know, a semi-professional athletic lifestyle. I was, you know, trying to live a life of a competitive mountain biker, a sponsored mountain biker. And it's kind of a burnout thing. 
you're always looking for sponsors. You kind of have to self-promote and sell yourself to a level that almost makes you feel dirty. And like in, in, in mountain biking, bike climbing, you're getting out into the woods, you're getting out into nature, you're spending time with friends, but not when you're competing. When you're competing, you know, on a mountain bike, you don't look up and enjoy the views. You just click it into a harder gear and go down the other side, right? Like you're, you're not stopping to enjoy yourself. You are very much, I have to win. I have to beat this other person. And if I don't beat this other person, they're going to get my sponsorship and be able to, you know, make the money that I can't make. Right. And so it, 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 it sucks the soul out of the sport to a large degree. And then I found climbing. And now it, in around 2000, 2001, when I found climbing, there was no money. There were a few people like Chris Sharma and Tommy Cobalt that could make a couple bucks, but even they weren't making a ton of money. Um, and nobody else was. And it was just friends in the woods. And you had all the level of competition that I love of, of throwing yourself at something with everything in you and challenging yourself, but none of the beating the other person, right? Like there was nobody cared. Like, hey, I did a first ascent. Great. Like I'm working on this other thing, right? It was just you were competing with folks instead of against them. And that's I think how climbing spoke to me because it had all the competition that I sought, but none of the I have to beat this person. Um, so when, to wrap it back to your question, when I first built the Valhalla climbing teams, when we had after school programming from day one, um, climbing teams were there was no college, there was no collegiate program. It didn't do anything for your resume. For me, this was going to be a space where teams were all about teamwork, supporting one another. Um, all of the culture and values that were important to me in climbing um, and not about winning or beating other folks. And so we very much built it to be that kind of supportive environment. And I think since then it has grown now. Yeah, it'll get you into college. It'll get you a, 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 you know, a name. It'll, it'll build the resume. It'll do all the things. But that wasn't the original goal. It was just to be a place where you could leave the crazy of the world and hang out with your friends and like-minded folks in a very cool and supportive environment. Yeah, and that's exactly what it was. I feel like um, Valhalla, like I felt what you said about not competing against and competing with, like Valhalla was all about that for me. I know, like, what is it, like three generations or so of team kids that have, like, grown up in this gym that you built? Um, and yeah, like, I go to different gyms and different teams. Like, I remember I would, you know, get private coached by other people and I always felt that like insane like pressure and it was so serious and I came back to Valhalla and I was like oh this is just I remember why I like doing this and it was like such a great release and it was never like I never wanted it to be at Valhalla I think it's like a very special team because everyone else now like beta or they're you know great gyms but it's it's much more um centered on the success of you know I don't know how to say it just like it's they're looking at the bigger picture of like college success and all that the how is like in the moment and what you can get out of it now and later I don't know it's just very different from other teams I've experienced because I've dabbled a lot in um different groups so yeah I, I appreciate that I mean I think it's exactly what you said it, it is those programs are fantastic programs and they're building national level athletes but they're also they're doing it in, in like you said a highly competitive environment and I I just feel like especially high school kids these days there's so much pressure the amount of kids getting anxiety disorders and nervous tics and all things it's at record levels the, you know america's never seen kids with such high levels of anxiety before and so i've always built 
Valhalla especially, because that's my baby, that's where I started, as a place that you can, can leave that behind, right? And step into a place and be like, here are my people, here are my friends. And sure, you're going to get strong and you're going to try hard, but you're going to do it in an environment where everyone else is like, yes, I'm really just sent that thing. Exactly, yeah. The word I was looking for was like, they're very industrial, institutionalized, industrialized, but the kids yeah. all are very like, you know, fun and like whenever we went to competitions I remember like this is so clear whenever Valhalla comp kids went to other gyms to compete they always looked at us like you guys are so weird because we'd be having fun we'd be like you know warming up like with Dane it's doing like stuff and we were still serious of course we still wanted to win but it was on a much like calmer level and it was much more coming from a better place I think so you know what over the years we have lost kids to other programs because they wanted that high level competitive environment um, and honestly, frankly, I'm okay with that. I think you, you know our coaches. They're as educated and competent um, from a training perspective as anyone out there. I think they just provide a different value structure. Um, and for me, our programs, our kids' programs are, are much more than like kind of a profit center. I've watched from you and like the original crew of like Bryce and Molly and, and then like I've watched 12, 13 year olds or even younger come in as a birthday party and take our, you know, our, our after school programming and become competitive team kids. And then usually around 16, get a job as belaying at other kids' birthday parties and go off to school and then come back. And, and I've, you know, I've watched these generations of kids grow up in the gyms and it's almost a paternal feeling, right? Like I see them and there's pride and like, look at these great humans we've produced. And so so maybe, maybe you could eke another V grade out of these kids if you were a lot more, put a lot more pressure on their shoulders and a lot more like, you know, intensity, but I don't know that that's the healthiest or the best thing for their, you know, overall life. And sure, like I said, maybe we've lost a few kids over the years for it, but I, I'm proud of the fact. Yeah. Well, I think that's, it's really cool that you're like intrinsically motivated, not just from the profit standpoint. And that you're looking at as at your clients as as people like at the most basic level they're people and many times they're kids that you know they actually need this and use sport as a kind of like therapy in a way especially like in high school and you know based on like talking to Amalia about it and she's always like climbing has given so much to me she's always talking about how how the community like the community building in in, in climbing has been just such an important thing in her life and the, the fact that you're like replicating that effect on so many people, it's really, really cool. I hope so. You know, when I saw people start coming into the gyms on their rest days, I realized we were doing something right. Um, I forgot my train of thought there. <laughs> that's the funny comment. That's how you know. That's how you know it's good. Right? Oh, yeah, like it's that, whatever, because Margaret, you know that I work there. Like we just after shifts, like we just stay. Like I'm at the gym all day now, and I don't even mean right. to be. And I come home, and they're like, "Where are you?" And I'm like, uh, <laughs> "I don't know." I even try. It just sucked me in. Like it's just you can't. It's just such you a know, and that hasn't changed for me. I'm 48 years old, and I often I want to. I don't want to. I mean, I, I often work from home now. But if I'm at the gym, I don't want to go home after work. I'm like, where I work is more fun than leaving. Yeah. The staying time. For sure. Um. You know, I think for a lot of kids, if they had fit in and been like the soccer star, the football star, whatever, they may never have reached out and found climbing in the first place. Um, you know, sometimes a lot of the kids that climbing speaks to maybe don't 
fit in into that traditional youth sport culture, right? And that you find climbing and it's a different group of folks and it's a different style thing. And there's no people screaming at you or ball flying at your face or, you know, you're just there, like we said, with a bunch of people spotting you, supporting you, saying, I got you, you can send this. And, and I think it, it, so for people maybe who didn't fit in in that normal, like cool kid high school culture, find the Alhalla, find climbing gyms and find a group of people who, you know, it's amazing. You know, I hear about, you know, the kids who work at Valhalla, they're going camping together on the weekends and doing, you know, all their social lives together and hey, all the staff still lives together. Um, you know, like it, it's a, it becomes a lot more than that after school or training program. It becomes kind of your a support culture, a, a group of community of people that are there for you. So I think it's really has a bigger positive impact too than just that like supportive training program. It becomes, you know, a friend network, a social culture, a thing that is different from that high school culture, less competitive, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Especially because it's not really attached to your school. It's like a totally different place to go to after school. And also it's not just kids, like you're climbing with adults. Like you're, it's every, you know, age group, every um, demographic, like, you really learn, especially about how I learned how to talk to adults from such a young age. And just I don't know, it's just such a great experience to learn with people that are different from you, and it's it exposes kids that very young. So it's, I mean, I'm definitely putting my kid in a gym. So like, it just generational thing. Um, but yeah, uh, Marco, do you have any more questions that you want to ask? Um, I I wanted to like highlight the takeaway of like follow your passion. That's one of like the biggest messages I got from you. And it's, it's true. Like sometimes you got to take a risk to get the big reward that is following your passion. And when you, when you do follow that passion, you, you're going to find something that's really rewarding beyond just the money that comes from it. Mm. For sure. Yeah. And if there's a takeaway and if this is aimed at, at, at um, college age folks, um, it's that the younger you are, the less kind of can go wrong if you try something and you fail, right? You know, I have now a house and a mortgage and kids and it would be a lot harder for me today to quit everything and, and just try something new than it would be post-college. Yeah, I know there's student debt and that's a big deal and there's probably car payments and insurance and other things, but it's a manageable number. Now is the time that you try things, you know? And I tell you, you learn more when you fail than when you succeed. Um, it is great. You look at any successful business person and they've probably had some, some, a uh, bunch of businesses go belly up along the way. That's how you learn to be a good entrepreneur. So, you know, take hold of that moment and it, and try things and fail. And that's good. You will be a better business person if you fail a few times along the way. Yeah, for sure. And it's especially, um, just awesome. Cause like you, I mean, you started young, but still like late twenties, it's like, kind of like people assume you have to be, you know, tied down at that point so you have like so much time people don't realize everything they have um right now so cool. yeah that's all the questions that i have um we awesome. really appreciate you coming on i was so excited because i don't know i just want to know i've always wanted to know these things but i just this is a great opportunity for me to ask um this was a lot of fun thanks for having me <laughs> but yeah and um hopefully i will see you at the gym <laughs> <laughs> Marco, it was great to meet you. If you're ever in New York, come by the gym. Yeah, yeah, no, you're, 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 yeah. When I, when I visit Amalia, I'm definitely going to Valhalla. Thank you so awesome. much, Mike. Awesome, Amalia. Let me know when he's there. I'd love to meet him in person. <laughs>
All right. Thank you so much, Nick.